The following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We'll be looking this morning in Haggai chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 9, if you uh, have a Bible or want to follow along. And so we'll begin uh, by reading uh, from Haggai chapter 2. So if you want to follow along as I read. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The later glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. All right, if you've been walking with us through uh, this journey uh, in Haggai, you'll know that uh, the background of this, the people of Israel had rebelled against God, and he allowed uh, the Babylonians to come in and destroy Jerusalem and completely level the temple, something that the Jews thought would never happen, that God would preserve the temple. But in his wrath, he allowed it to be destroyed. And the people of Jerusalem and Judea were uh, carried off to Babylon as exiles. And about 60 years later, uh, King Cyrus issues a decree that these people can now return to Jerusalem. And so they start trickling back in, in rather small numbers to this uh, leveled, uh, destroyed city. And they begin rebuilding it. And uh, one of the first priorities should have been rebuilding the temple. Uh, and they actually started rebuilding the, uh, the temple, but it was hard they didn't have places to live. Uh, they needed to grow food. And so they got sidetracked. Right? Their priorities got out of order, and they weren't putting God first. And that was the first thing we saw, that they, uh, Haggai calls them to set your priorities straight. Put God first. Put his temple first. And so they get back to work. After 15 years, they get back to work rebuilding the temple. Then we saw last week that... Uh, it's not enough just to have priorities. You can have great priorities, but your life can be quite out of balance. And so he calls them to do the work to set God as the priority, but to do it in a balanced way, balancing uh, community, uh, their fellowship with God, communion, and the mission, the work, building the temple, to do those in, in balanced order. Um, so uh, we see now we come to chapter 2, and, and actually about two months have gone by now, and already... People are starting to get really discouraged, right? Two whole months into a project that's going to take many years, and already they are getting discouraged. And uh, the progress is slow. Maybe there's still just piles of rubble everywhere. Uh, they show up, and this was actually a festival day. This was the Feast of Tabernacles, and we'll see why that's uh, significant. And they, they look at this pile of rubble and how little work they've got done. And uh, some of them, some of the grandmas and grandpas that were there, remember the Temple of Solomon and uh, how spectacular it was. And if you know much about his temple, uh, it was covered inside from top to bottom in gold, right? It was spectacular. And they remembered it. 
And they saw this pile of rubble that they're working on, and it was discouraging. They did not have the mountains of gold and silver like Solomon did to adorn the temple to its former glory. And, you know, it's hard to keep motivated when you feel like you're not going to be successful, right? Um, To keep with the task when you feel like we're not going to succeed. This is not going to end well. But it's hard to be motivated. And so uh, Haggai saw that there was real danger of the work coming to a halt again as the people are starting to get really, really discouraged. Um, do any of you have big dreams? Anybody have big dreams? Anybody? You have to raise your hand. You can if you want, though, right? Or do, or do you just dream small, right? Um, well, we live in a world that I think there's a lot of pressure to dream big, right? Um, there's a lot of pressure to have great expectations about your life. And this starts actually when we're quite young, when we're children, right? We don't tell our little kid when they're five years old, they say when they want to be, you know, ruler of the world. We don't say, well, don't dream too big, son. You know, you're not that bright. <laughs> you're not that talented. And, you know, maybe just shoot for like being a dishwasher, flipping hamburgers. That's probably more like, like, do we tell our kids that? No. Because uh, we may want to, you know, buffer their enthusiasm a little. Like, maybe instead of being president of the world, let's just start with, like, mayor right? or governor. Um, uh, but, but we do want to encourage our kids, and we, we, we ask them, what do you want to be when you grow up, right? And most of our kids don't say, yeah, I'm hoping to just sweep floors, right? No, they want to be doctors and policemen and firemen, and they want to have big dreams, and we don't, we don't usually discourage that, right? We want to, we, we say, yeah, you can do that. Um, and we live in a world where success means living up to those expectations, right? Um, we're not okay with the kid who comes home with a report card full of Fs, right? We're not like, well, it's okay. Uh, well, some people are actually, but uh, most people are like, no, that's not really okay. You're, you're capable of more, right? Especially if we know our kids have the ability Right? We want them to live up to their potential. And so uh, not only do our parents, but even friends and, and society as a whole kind of expects us to accomplish things, uh, to succeed at some level. Um, and that's part of how we measure our life. Uh, uh, sometimes those big dreams involve having great adventures, traveling the world, going to exotic places. Uh, but but wherever you go, you're saving the world as you go, right? You're making the world a better place. And we have those dreams. So is it, is it wrong to dream big? So as these, as these Israelites stood looking at this huge pile of rubble and remembering the former temple of Solomon, was it wrong for them to dream big? Or should they have just adjusted their expectations and said, well, you know, let's not get too carried away. Uh, we know we're a poor, small group. Let's lower the bar, right? Let's, let's just build God a little hut, <laughs> Let's not call it a temple. Let's just do a hut because we can do that, right? Um, well, I think, I think God wants us to dream big. I think God wants to do big things in and through our life. Certainly, as we'll see, I think God expected not a hut, right? That's not really making God a priority if the best they can come up with is a hut. That was part of his original criticism in chapter 1, right? God has big dreams, big expectations for them. Um, but there's a danger of big dreams. And the problem with great expectations is that when it doesn't quite work out, it can lead to even greater disappointments, right? Greater disappointments. And like Israel, we are on a mission from God to work and build his house, uh, to labor for his kingdom. And, and I would say that God's expectations are pretty high, right? God's plans are big. What God wants to do in us and through us is big. He's not calling us to, uh, to meaningless, insignificant things. But if we're honest and if we are, are laboring for the kingdom, we would all admit that it's hard. Like Israel, the work sometimes goes painfully slow. Uh, resources can be extremely limited. And we could feel just like Israel. It's like, how in the world is this ever going to measure up to what we remember from the past, from what we've seen other people do. Um, and, and, and the truth is, it, it is easy, and, and uh, we often may feel very disappointed, very discouraged about our life and our ministry and our work. 
and feel like, you know, I'm just not, uh, I'm not living up to those expectations I had for myself. I'm not, I'm not achieving my big dreams. Uh, and and the, the problem in those times is there's huge risk of just giving up. That's what was, what was happening here. The Israelites were at danger of quitting, giving up, throwing in the towel, saying it's, it's not going to happen. Let's just move on. Right? Uh, but Haggai encourages them not to quit, to persevere and keep at the task. And so uh, the encouragement that he gives to them, I believe, is very relevant for us. I think Haggai would encourage us with the exact same words. So what is this encouragement for us? Uh, if you're if you're discouraged now, or maybe you're not discouraged yet, but it'll come, right? It comes. These disappointments come. So here's some ways we can be encouraged. Grozov uh, he says uh, he gives a kind of a time frame. In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. It's important to note uh, over and over it repeats. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Thus declares the Lord of hosts. This is from the Lord. This is not really Haggai's encouragement. It is ultimately God's encouragement for the people. He says, speak now to the Zerubbabel, to uh, Joshua, to all the people, and, and to the remnant, and say to them, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Uh, one of the things I love about Haggai in this passage is that uh, Haggai doesn't just blast him. He doesn't go out there and say, well, you bunch of losers, why are you so discouraged? Right? Uh, Buck up and get after it, right? He starts actually by understanding what's going on in their heart. He has a lot of empathy for them. And he says, look, I get it. Like you, 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 you grandmas and grandpas who, who remember, which, by the way, the temple would have been destroyed about 65 years previous. So there are probably quite a number of grandmas and grandpas still around in their 70s and maybe even 80s who remember, who saw Solomon's temple. And he said... Uh, you who, who saw it in its former glory, how do you see it now? Um, this house of God, it's, it's, it's as nothing, right? It's as nothing. It's like, it's, like it, it, it's like zero. It's not even like, well, if I compare this to this, this is definitely better and this is worse. He goes, no, this is non-existent. It's nothing in your eyes, right? And it would be so hard to think about back in the good old days. And certainly these grandparents told their children and grandchildren uh, of their memories of the temple. Uh, this building stood some 90 feet tall, which back in the day, you know, before high-rises, 90 feet was an impressive structure. I mean, it, uh, it, would have, it would have towered over the rest of the city of Jerusalem. So you would have seen from a distance this tower, this temple. And, um, and they said, you know what? Inside, from top to bottom, that whole thing was paneled and, and covered in gold. Like, we're not talking spray paint. Like, this is, this is impressive, right? And hammered into all kinds of elaborate designs of angels and trees and, and uh, beautiful, right? The doors, just the doors of the temple were covered in gold. So they had these huge, massive doors that would close in the, in the evening or in the morning sun, actually, facing east, uh, would just dazzle in the sunlight. And on each side of those massive doors were two huge bronze pillars, huge bronze pillars that towered up to the top of the building. And in between was this elaborate uh, latticework of pomegranates and chains all in bronze. I mean, it was impressive. Impressive. Um, Outside was a bronze basin the size of a swimming pool. Massive, right? Uh, The things that, like, would would awe anybody, even in our day. I think if we saw it, we would go, whoa, that was a large chunk of bronze, right? And, uh, like, I, I've never seen a bronze swimming pool. I don't know about you, but that's impressive, right? And the altar, all of it was, was at a scale and uh, that, that, that was designed to give glory to God. Like, the splendor of it was to just call people to, like, this is the God we worship. He is worthy of this kind of display of glory and splendor and wealth. Right? And if he says, when you think about that and then you look at this pile of rubble in front of you, it's discouraging. Sure it is. It's disappointing. Right? After two months, they had seen very little progress. Uh, the season was fall. It was during the, the grape and olive harvest. So they hadn't been able to devote a lot of time because they had to get in their meager little crops that were struggling. Um, it, was, it would have been the, the date of this sermon uh, in Chapter 2 would have been October 17, 520 B.C., uh, to be exact. 
and, and the festival of, of tabernacles or of booths was actually the time period, if you read back in Chronicles, when Solomon dedicated his temple. Right? So they're meeting at this festival. It's supposed to be a joyous time of remembering the Exodus and, and also of remembering uh, the great accomplishment of Solomon building the temple. And that would just add fuel to the fire, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, today's the day Solomon dedicated his glorious temple, and look at us. We're just a bunch of losers. What are we really doing? Who are we kidding here? Right? We don't have gold. We can't even buy groceries. Right? They were, they were poor, starving people. Right? Uh, when our great ex- expectations don't work out, it is discouraging. Right? It is discouraging. Well, one solution, this is kind of my solution, so this is my way to deal with the problem. Right? Just don't have great expectations. Right? Just lower the bar a lot. Right? That's, what, that's how I deal with it. I just don't expect much out of life. But is that really what God calls us to? Right? Um, God himself was calling them to rebuild the temple. Right? This was God's call. This was uh, God's expectation. And he said, by the way, uh, throughout this passage, the word temple or house is singular. In other words, it's not like, well, the former house was this way, but the new house is going to be less. So he says, this is my house. Whether it's in its former glory or its present glory, it's one continuous house of God. Uh, and he says, I, want, I need you to rebuild it that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. Right? God's expectation for this new temple was not less than Solomon's temple. And we'll see that later. God expects a temple worthy of his glory, worthy of the God who created the universe. Right? Uh, so I don't think God wants us to lower the bar. Right? I don't think God calls us to, to say, well, who am I? Uh, I'm nobody. Uh, I can't do anything. So I'm just going to check out. Right? No. Uh, God wants to do big things in us and through us. That's his call for every, every disciple and follower of Christ. Jesus said, uh, you did not ch- choose me, but I chose you so that you might bear much fruit. Right? God's not saying, I'm, I'm hoping you can at least squeeze out one little grape there and I'll be happy. No. He says, I want you to bear much fruit. That's God's expectation on your life. <clears throat> and, and we, like Israel, are also called to build his house. Well, actually, though, more. We're not actually called to build this house. We are called to build his kingdom. Okay, So if, uh, if the bar was high for Israel, it just got a whole lot higher for us. We're to build his kingdom, his global kingdom, not just in one place or one city. But he's, Jesus said we're to go and make disciples of all nations. Right? We're not just supposed to build a city in Chiang Mai. We're to be discipling the nations. We're to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and all Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Right? God's got a pretty big dream for us. <clears throat> it's not a small one. Um, so, that, so that there would be a kingdom of God worshipers from every tribe and tongue and nation. Right? That's what God's vision is. That's what his mission is. That's what his call is upon our life. That we would be reaching the nations with the gospel and proclaiming him uh, to every tribe and tongue and seeing disciples raised up uh, around the globe. Right? <clears throat> I don't know about you, but when I think about that task, it's like uh, I feel like the Israelites. Like I got my little pile of rocks chipping away, right? And I, I see this vision for building God's kingdom. It's like, wow, who am I? Right? Who am I? What am I? Um, so what happens when God's expect, grand and glorious expectations re- meet the reality of my small little life? Right? Well, we can feel just like Israel. Uh, you know, we're just trying to survive the challenges of everyday life. Um, praise God, Friday COVID was over. Amen. Praise God, um, it's done. Uh, and and like I'm just dealing with stuff like that. Like I just trying to get through the days. And and uh, it's very easy to think, you know, I I I am not enough, right? Uh, you look at people in the Bible like Paul and Peter and John healing people and raising people from the dead and out saving the whole world. You know, Paul planted churches. He said, he says, I've planted churches. I've, I've completed the gospel in the whole province of Asia. I'm moving on now. Like, what? Like, wow. 
uh, how can I compete with that? Right? Right in the Bible, right? Uh, who am I? I can't even memorize five verses, right? We look at great servants of the past, like Hudson Taylor, Adoniram Judson, Martin Luther, or John Calvin, or Dwight Moody, or going down the list, Billy Graham, right, who, who seemed to do incredible things for God. And we can think, I, like, I am not, I can't do that, right? Who am I compared to those, those great uh, servants? Or even just, like, like maybe, maybe you've had this experience. You go to a conference, maybe your mission orgs conference or some other leadership conference, and uh, everybody's there telling all these great stories of God's uh, huge success in their ministry. And you think, well, I'm not a super missionary. I'm not a super pastor, right? It's discouraging. We feel like there's no way we will ever have the resources or the smarts or the time to be successful like that. And, and uh, like, like Israel's, we'll see in a minute, one of the issues was, was, was financial resources. Uh, maybe you, uh, you look at your constant struggle to raise enough support. It's like, I can't even raise enough support to raise my family. How am I supposed to save the world, right? And it just seems so hard. Um, uh, it, it can feel like the work is progressing painfully slow. And maybe we read stories about church planting movements where, you know, somebody went into some village and within two weeks, 100 people were saved and then they discipled those. And those people went out and within a month, they had, they had reached thousands. And uh, within two years, there was a church planting movement of 10,000 churches, right? And, and maybe you've been laboring away for 10 years and after 10 years, you have one disciple who's kind of moved from crawling to almost standing on their own, right? Go, right? It's just it's discouraging, right? It can be just like the Israelites. Um, and certainly, uh, if you've been in Thailand very long, if, you, if you've been plugging away at, at ministry and life here, you know it's hard, right? It's hard. It's much more difficult than we probably imagine. Uh, I had this vision that I would come to Thailand. I would study Thai for a couple of years and speak like a native. No sweat, Right? Well, after five years of Thai study, I got so excited because I could, after five years, I could order Thai food and actually get what I wanted. <laughs> it only took five years. Right? And now I'm supposed to tell people about Jesus. I can't even order rice, right? Uh, it can be quite discouraging. It can be very discouraging. And there is a very real temptation to just give up, right? to be discouraged and so disappointed and say, why bother, right? I'm not going to succeed anyway. It's not going to matter what I do anyway. So why don't I just quit and go home and life would be so much easier, right? It would be so much easier to just live a normal life. Uh, so why don't I just give up? And that's exactly what these people were feeling, right? And so, so Haggai gives this instruction and there's actually three imperatives, three commands he gives here. Uh, be strong, work, and don't fear. But the center, not only in order, but the center in terms of what it's about is really the word work, right? He says, be strong, Zerubbabel, be strong, Joshua, be strong people. Work, work, for I am with you. Work, right? And that's really his main uh, push for them, command. Um, and the idea here is to keep working, don't give up, don't quit. Keep at it, right? And the challenge, he says, is the challenge is this. Um, what you need is perseverance. And perseverance is the, the art or the ability to just show up <clears throat> every day and just keep doing the task. Right? That's what it's about. Right? Just get to work every day and take it one day at a time and just do the work for that day and don't give up. Work. Right? Just work. Keep plugging away at it, right? And one of the hard things, you know, when we compare the present with the past is that the past gets condensed into a moment, right? Yeah, sure, you could look back at Solomon's temple and see the completed finished product without realizing it took uh, actually going back to David who wanted to build the temple. And in his whole life, it didn't get done and it got passed on to his son. And Solomon didn't build it in a day, right? It took well into his reign before it even began. 
And then it took time to complete. Right? But we look back, and that's the problem. We look back at the good old days. And what we remember is the finished product. Right? It's like taking a road trip. You know, you're on a road trip. You've got to drive thousands of miles. After 200 hours in your car, you think, I am never going to get there. Right? It's just taking forever. But finally you get to your destination. It's done. And what do you say? Well, that wasn't so bad. Right? And that's how life is. And when you're in the midst of the long journey, it's hard. Right? Uh, but you'll never get to the finish if you don't just keep moving forward. Keep at the task. Persevere. Um, and we can all say, well, yeah, that, sure, that sounds great. But what about those days when it's so hard you just want to quit? Right? What encouragement is there to keep going? Well, uh, Haggai, or really God, through Haggai, gives them uh, some four things to encourage them. So let's look at these real, real brief. Uh, he wants them to be encouraged by four things that will help them keep at it, to persevere. First thing, he says, be strong. Actually, he says it three times. Yet now, be strong, O Zerubbabel, the governor. Two, uh, be strong... Joshua, the high priest. Thirdly, be strong, all you people of the, of the land, declares the Lord. What does it mean to be strong? Well, uh, being strong simply means having the power and ability sufficient to accomplish a task. Okay, the power sufficient to accomplish a task. That's what being strong is. So a weightlifter, he's strong when he has the power to lift that 200-kilogram bar up over his head. You've watched these guys do that. It's like, that's impressive. But he has the power, the capacity to meet that challenge and to do it, right? Uh, we talk about somebody being a strong runner or a strong swimmer. And we mean it's a person who has the power to keep going at a pace that will get them uh, to the end, to the finish line, to run the race well. Uh, we talk about finishing strong. What do we mean by that? Well, it means you're not crawling you know, across on your belly. It means... So you know you have the power to get to the finish line and, and finish well, right? That's what we mean. It's, it's this power to, to be successful, this power to finish, this power to meet the challenge and accomplish the task. Uh, and if something is weak, it means it doesn't have the power to rise up to the task. I remember many years ago I was uh, speaking at a uh, pastor's conference in India, and uh, the place where we were meeting was this campus that this friend of mine, his Indian National, had built. <clears throat> Beautiful building. And um, they, they, he had put a lot of money. He was really proud of his floors. It was all about the floors. And he'd spent tons of money putting in these marble floors and polishing them to be like glass. So they were just beautiful, right? So he spent all the money on the floors. He did not spend money on chairs, right? He just got these cheap plastic chairs. And at the conference with all these rather large Indian guys, not all, but, you know, I mean, some, some big guys like me, right, were sitting in these chairs. And what happened, because the, the, the floor was so polished that the back legs of the plastic chair would, would slowly start separating out, right? And eventually, uh, there would come a point where they would just snap, and, and in the whole room, you could hear this crack and down as it dumped this some guy out on his back, the occupant of the chair, right? Um, it, it was not strong. Right? It didn't have the power to carry the weight and, 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 and meet the task. Right? So, so, so going back to the Bible here, Haggai says, God says to them, be strong. Right? Uh, work with the power to get the job done and, and to, to finish and be successful. But how does that really work? And how does that work? Imagine this. Okay, imagine this. Um, you go to the gym and you see this guy who's got muscles everywhere and he's lifting. He's just throwing around, you know. 200 kilos like it's like it's a feather. Boom, boom, boom. And you think, oh, I can do that, right? I'm going to be strong. I'm just going to tell myself I'm going to be strong. I got this, right? I got this. And me and my little skinny arms, I go up there and I grab that barbell. And, <clears throat> right? I can't even get it off the floor, much less throw it over my head, right? Does telling yourself to be strong make you strong? No, it doesn't work that way, right? Either you have the power or you don't have the power. You can't just make it up, right? You can't just say, well, I'm going to be strong. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So, Haggai, what are you talking about? You're, you're giving us bad advice here. It's not just like, be strong, be tough, you can do this, uh, you got it, right? 
no, there's got to be more to it. And there actually is, right? There's more to what he says here. He says, be strong, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Be strong, because I am with you. Okay, we don't go forward uh, mustering up our own power to accomplish the task. Uh, we walk in God's power. Right? That's the only hope and the only way. Be strong, for I am with you, because of the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Right? That was his promise, and that was the whole thing of the Exodus. And the, the original tabernacle and God's presence being in their midst and he, him being with them. And, and it is that power, it is God's presence that is the strength, the power that we go out in. Right? If we are trying to do life and ministry and accomplish our dreams by our own power, we will certainly fail. As much as it would me trying to go pick up a 300-kilo dumbbell, right? It's just not going to happen. I don't have the power. We don't have the power. But praise God, his promise, that's his, the covenant, is his promise that he will do it through us, right? Uh, if you feel like you're not enough, you can't do it, you're not the Apostle Paul, you are in good company. Because even the Apostle Paul, who saved, you know, all of Asia, he says, uh, says in, in 1 Corinthians 2, 3, when he went to Corinth, he says, And I was with you, you Corinthians, in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Okay, this is not Superman. right? Paul says, Man, I came to you. I was shaking in my boots. I was terrified. I was not with you in strength. I wasn't with you as Mr. Super Missionary. Right? I came in weakness. Right? Um, but... We come in the strong power of, of the abiding presence of God. So later in Philippians chapter 4, Paul can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, Jesus says a similar thing in Matthew 11 where he says, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, all who are worn out and discouraged, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You will find rest. Why? Because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And that's not because Jesus is saying, well, I don't have a lot for you to do. He does have a lot for us to do. But what he's saying is, when you're yoked with me, I will carry the weight. I will pull the majority of the load so that your portion, the part you carry, is easy in life. That's good news. It's not about our strength or our ability or our wisdom, uh, our skill. It's about it's about God's power. Right? Um, second thing he says, do not fear. Uh, verse five. According to the covenant I made with you when you first came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Fear not. Um, well, what was it they were afraid of? Well, in the context here, we see that the main thing they were worried about and concerned about is that they wouldn't have the resources to, to build a temple like Solomon's, right? They, they didn't have the gold. They didn't have silver. They didn't have these beautiful bronze, iron, and, and sculpt, sculptures and works, right? Um, but again, uh, the fear not uh, comes with a promise, Right, so if we read on in verse 6, he says, verse 5, fear not. Verse 6, for thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. Uh, Jesus' message here is simply this, that you don't need to worry about paying for it. Right? Just, uh, I, God says, I got, I've got it covered. Right? I, I, I am going to provide, I am going to resource all of the work. You don't have to worry about that. And he says he's going to do that by shaking the nations. 
I don't know if you remember kind of the old cartoons, or maybe they still have cartoons like this, where uh, somebody grabs some guy by the heel and turns him upside down and shakes him, right, until all the money falls out of his pockets. That's kind of the picture here. God says, I'm going to pick up the nations. I'm going to turn them upside down. I'm going to shake them until their treasures fall out. By the way, uh, older translations said, um, uh, come desired of nations. And it's made its way into some cool Christmas songs. And uh, uh, early uh, Christians used to think this really was talking about Jesus. But he's not, he's not talking about Jesus. That would be cool. <laughs> and certainly Jesus does come later and fill this very temple. He shows up at this very temple um, at his birth. Uh, but, but really he's talking here about the physical resources they need to, to adorn the temple in a glorious fashion. I will shake the name. And, and he says, the, the gold and silver are mine. Important reminder, God uh, owns everything on earth, right? All the gold, all the silver, all the money, all your money, <laughs> all everybody's money. It belongs to him, right? God does not need to rob a bank to fund ministry. He doesn't have to go get a job washing dishes, right, so he can fund ministry. Amazingly enough, God doesn't even have to go raise support. Doesn't have to go talk to churches. Um, well, maybe he does talk to churches. I'm not sure. But uh, what we want him to do actually is just shake the churches. That's what we want. Let's see some shaking the nations, right? Uh, God does that. He shakes the nations. Yep, yep, yep. We need to move a car. Uh, a, a white Toyota Naya five nine one two. You need to move your car. Yeah, so, okay, great. Um, right, so, so God's going to provide. And, in fact, he does shake the nations. And a, a very short time after this, actually, Darius becomes very successful in his military campaigns. He conquers many lands, and he actually takes the wealth of many nations. And amazingly enough, Darius the king of the Persian Empire directs much of that wealth towards the building of the temple in Jerusalem. Why would he do that? Well, because God is sovereign, and God can use anybody in, in any means to fund his temple. Right? So they, they really didn't have to worry about it. They had all the wealth they needed, and not just a little wealth. Right? Uh, they had what they needed to adorn and make the temple as beautiful as it could be. And not only that, but uh, much later, a few hundred years later, uh, along came Herod the Great, who took Roman money and upgraded the temple even more and uh, built actually a temple that was that actually made Solomon's temple look shabby. Right? Herod's temple was impressive, impressive. Um, and, and, and so uh, this prophecy was very much fulfilled. And here's the promise for us. God never calls us to anything, uh, to any work, to any ministry, to any path that he has not promised and committed to pay for. Right? Uh, one of my favorite examples of this is George Mueller. And he uh, was a German missionary actually to Britain, to uh, London, uh, back in the 1800s. Uh, and he showed up after the, one of the horrible plagues that swept through Europe. And there were literally thousands of young children uh, orphaned on the streets whose parents had died. And he saw this, and he opened a, an orphanage. At one point, it had about 2,000 children. And if you know George Mueller's story, you know that he had pledged to never ask anybody for money, to never even let his needs be known. He was just going to trust God. And oftentimes, he is held up as a great example of faith, right, that he just trusted God and God provided. And if you, you can imagine feeding 2,000 children. And he tells these stories about waking up in the morning and their cupboards were bare. They had nothing. And, and like feeding 2,000 children, we're not talking about like one loaf of bread, right? It would take a lot. And, uh, but he was confident. And he, wouldn't, he wouldn't put out the alarm, hey, we need food. Uh, he wouldn't put it on Facebook or anything, right? Uh, he just prayed. And, and time after time, and he tells these stories over and over, day by day, of just miracles of how God would provide. And a lot of people think, oh, it was his faith. He had this amazing faith that we all just had a faith like George Mueller. 
But a deeper look reveals that it wasn't really about his faith, not, not as we think of it. Right? It was not a matter of faith based on wishful thinking. Like if I just hope enough that God's going to provide food, he'll provide food. That's not the secret of George Mueller's life. And if you really read his biography and really study his life, he would tell you that his secret was based on a confidence, confidence that came with the certainty that he had clearly heard God's voice. He said, look, God told me to take care of these children. And if God told me to do this, I know God is going to take care of them. It's his problem, not mine. Right? And he saw that lived out. Not so much in his faith that God would provide, but his faith that God had called him to do that work. Right? Um, we we can we can trust in that have that same confidence, right? But the confidence comes when we know with certainty the work we are doing is the work God's called us to. Right? Where we get in trouble is we have our own ideas, right? our own plans, and. Um, but when, we're, when we know what God has called us to do, it works. Um, Jesus models this uh, incredibly well. And, and I think it's amazing that Jesus even needed to do this. I mean, he's the son of God. Um, did he really need to worry about this? But in John 5, uh, Jesus is described this way. And he's having this debate uh, with the Pharisees who are uh, mad at him again because he healed on the Sabbath. Um, Uh, And he says in response to them uh, about, you know, why do you do this work on the Sabbath? And and who, how dare you call yourself equal with God? That's the debate behind us. But 19, notice what Jesus says in uh, John 5, 19. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Where the father works, the son works. And see, that, that's, the, that's the real secret. God is working. Right? God is working. The trick is showing up where God's working. And that's what Jesus did. Right? He says, I want to know where the Father is working. And I'm going to show up where the Father is working. And, and the Father, he says, is revealing to the Son what he is doing. And so I go there. And, and it works. Right? It's successful. Because God is doing the work. Which really brings us into the next next point. Um, third piece of encouragement: It's God's mission, not ours. It's, it's ultimately His mission, right? Not our mission. It's ultimately His work, not our work. Verse seven, He says, "I will shake the nation, so the treasures will fall and come in, and I will fill this house with glory," says the Lord. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The later glory of this house shall be greater than the former. Um, the promise uh, was fulfilled in terms of certainly the grandeur and physical beauty of the temple. And at one level, uh, the meaning here is that the, the physical glory of the building is not going to be anything to be embarrassed about. They don't have to be disappointed because in the end, God's going to make sure it measures up in its, in its appearance. But, but beyond that, he also says that the ultimate glory comes because the very presence of the Lord will fill it, right? That's the real glory, right? Otherwise, it's just a building. It could be like any temple, right? And there have been other spectacular temples built, but they don't give glory to God. What made it glorify God was his presence was there. Um, and you know what? Only God can do that, right? Only God could make his presence live and abide and dwell in that place, there's nothing they could do about that. And, and I think the, the point here is that in the end, the ultimate fulfillment and success of the mission is, is a work only God can do. It ultimately is God's mission. right? He is the, uh, he is the Lord of the harvest. Therefore, ask him to send forth laborers into the harvest. Right? He, is, uh, he is the owner of the vineyard and the gardener. We're just a tiny little branch, right? Uh, and so we must abide in the vine uh, so that God can bear fruit through us. The, the point is it, is, it is ultimately the mission of God. 
It is His work, and He takes responsibility for it. He calls us to it. And He will guarantee its success. Right? If we just keep faithfully working day by day. Right? Um, you know, I can, I can put together the most elaborate s- sermons. I could try to be uh, super convincing and funny and dramatic and make people laugh or cry or whatever. Uh, I could uh, dissect Greek and Hebrew words inside out and backwards. Uh, that, that is my work, right? That is my job. But in the end, only God can fill his word with his presence. Right? And if he doesn't do that, it's just empty work. But if he fills it with his spirit, it has power to accomplish his work and his purpose. That's true for all of our work, right? Um, we do our small part, but we have the assurance that God does the rest. Like the di- disciples who brought their uh, five loaves and two fish, right? It wasn't much. It was not enough. But with Jesus, it was it was. It was overflowing with abundance. And all their job was to do was to serve, right? Pass out the bowls of food. That's all they did. But it was enough. And Jesus filled it with his power. And his promise that I will fill this house and this work with glory. And the glory of this house will be greater than you can imagine. Right? See, we don't know what the end, you don't know what the end of your work is. And the, the sad reality is, much of the end of your work, uh, you won't even know on the day you die. Right? Because the seeds that you plant keep going to the next generation and the next generation and, and, and down the line. Right? You don't know what may happen a hundred years from now because you showed up and worked today. Right? Uh, but we can have faith and hope that because it's God's work, it will be successful. Right? It will do. Faith. It will have a glory and a success far greater than we could begin to imagine. Last thing, we'll end with this. Uh, there is the promise of an abundant life. Right. This is all for God's glory. It is His mission. It is His work. But it's not that we don't get something out of it. Right. It's not that we don't have a a, a benefit in it. Verse 9, he says, The later glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord. The word peace here is the the Hebrew word shalom. And actually, Jessica could speak a lot better about this than I can, so you can ask her more about it. But she can confirm for me that peace doesn't just mean, like, getting along. The word shalom here has the idea of a, 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 a peace that results in every area of life because of the abundant blessing and provision of God, right? It's this fullness of life. It's, it's, it's so much more than just what we think of the word peace. It's abundance. It's life in abundance. It's life that works. Um, and he says, look, if you just keep working, I promise this place will be a place of shalom, of abundant blessing, right? Uh, this whole journey started because they did not put God first, and the result was drought and failing crops and a life that was anything but abundant. But the promise is, if you put God first and you work and you are faithful to the task he calls you to, there will be abundance. Now, this is not the prosperity gospel. Okay? This does not mean, well, God, I've served you, I moved to a foreign country, I'm, I'm doing ministry, and I'm still poor. <laughs> That's not what it means, right? That, that somehow God's going to make you rich and you can uh, like some um, famous evangelists can have your own fleet of jets and fly all over the world. That's not the promise. But the promise is this, that your life will have an abundance of purpose and joy and fulfillment. Your life will have meaning. And your life will be blessed in ways you can't imagine. Right? It will be abundant. Not because you have a fancy car, but because you have joy in serving God and in doing his work. And really, I can't think of anything more fulfilling than to come to the end of a life and not look back and say, wow, I own so many cool cars and cool airplanes. Right? No. Or I had a bigger house than anybody. That's not going to matter 
when you are at the end of your life. What you're going to want to know is that your life counted for eternity. And that when you arrive in glory, there will be fruit that remains. Fruit that abides through all eternity because your life made a difference in the lives of others and in the kingdom of God for all eternity. Right? That's abundance. Right? And there's no blessing greater than that. And that's the work that God calls us to. Um, that's all Old Testament. Does this work in the New Testament? Absolutely, right? Even at a greater level. Because the ultimate guarantee of our success is Jesus and his finished work on the cross, right? Because Jesus died on the cross and said it is finished, it is complete, the work is done, right? We walk in his already accomplished victory. And so uh, Galatians 2.20 says this, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. So it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Okay. Uh, this, is, this is real success, right? Jesus says, I will be with you. He says here, is, not only is he with us, but the life we live, we live because of Jesus. It is his very life that is in me. Okay. So yes, it can be discouraging. It can seem like you are going nowhere. It can feel like the work is impossible. But remember, you have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. In the life you live in the flesh, you live by faith in the Son of God, who loved you. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.com dot o r g